and welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here, brought to you by Tony and Sorsha. These are unscripted conversations about the things that we care about, not the things that we're experts in. Oh, and there's probably going to be some swearing. All right. So last week we talked about my personal experience for 2016 and Tony, I know you had also a, a you know a profound experience for 2016, both professionally and, and personally. And I, I really want to flip it to you and, and just hear what that was like for you. And I'll, I'll let you kind of share with our listeners what exactly I'm talking about. Yeah. 2016. Bloody hell. It's, it's weird. It feels like it was just yesterday. And we were talking about just the way you, the way you handle and deal like with shitty things. My, my way of dealing with it is you like box it up, close the lid, put it on a shelf and it's one of those like mental things of oh, I'll get back to you when I've got the brain capacity to do it. But in in my case, you're obviously referring to um, the 2016 referendum, the Brexit referendum, oh. which was historic to say the least. Because I mean, for many reasons, but mostly I don't remember what the numbers are, the the, the dates on this, but we hadn't had in the UK, I think, a referendum in. Like it's not a thing that we normally do. I know Switzerland holds referendums all the time. The UK just doesn't. And it was such a big question to pose to the public. Do you want in? Do you want out? Do you want to stay within the European Union or not? Um, I, it's, it's a hard one for me to sort of like pinpoint where the story starts. It, I mean, I guess that's always the, 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 the truth with, 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 with telling a story of just where it goes and where the starting point is. I mean, for me, it's, it was an interesting, as part of the job, you know, I, I, I decided to, to join Nation Builder at a time where I was a little lost, I think, politically, as we've talked about at length. Being a European, I, I, I enjoyed partaking or participating in the European elections that happen every five years. National and local elections are a little of a distant feeling to me just because I can't really generally where I live every time. I don't have the right to vote in national elections. So I always have to the European elections. And, and so that's just always been like my, my lens. But 2015, 2018, like all throughout those years, I was watching as outsiders were taking office like something was shifting politics was changing as a whole mm. i felt disconnected i remember seeing pictures of my dad holding banners on street corner corners you know axe the poll tax do this like that kind of political engagement that i just hadn't felt i was politically engaged i think in in other ways and it's hard to be politically engaged when it comes to the European Parliament because it's every five years, because it's such a distant thing. It happens in Brussels, which still happens to be where I lived. But yeah, I, I sort of, I had a moment of just listening and, and, and seeing what was happening around me. And in 2015, I had this moment of, I think what I'm most drawn to is the actual democratic process itself. Like that was the thing that got me excited, I think. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to remember back. And I was like, I actually had a moment of, I don't actually want to work for a political party. I don't want to be in policy. I don't want to be in government. I, I worked at the European Commission for, for a short period of time. I actually think 
what I'm excited about is what does the democratic process look like and what is it going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years? And so joining this tech startup that was basically about democratizing democracy felt like the right fit for me, although I had no idea what I was getting myself into, I think, in hindsight. Does anyone? I don't know. (laughs) The joys of a startup, right? You have no idea what you're putting yourself into. No idea. Absolutely no idea. So I think that was the turning point for me. Democratic process was what I was drawn to. National politics just didn't make any sense to me. And we've spoken about this. Like, I don't understand national borders. So forget national politics. European politics were clearly in a, in a shift even back, back then. Something was happening at that level for sure. And, and the, ide- the ideologies of Europe was somewhat being lost, even though I, I didn't lose them myself, but you could see that people were having a hard time. You know, when you think back of why the European Union was created, why is it beautiful that 28 countries are coming together and forming a unity? At the time, it was to prevent war, whether that was pool- pooling together resources like coal and steel to make sure that no one country can, you know, actually wage war on someone else whether that was from a political perspective, whether that was the free movement of people and humans, whatever that may be, I think people lost lost track of that. And, and I think hence why we, we, we paid the price with, with Brexit. But ultimately what ended up happening is joined a startup, started ever so slowly to grapple with what it actually meant to serve all communities. And I will never forget my interview with, with Jim Gilliam, who at the time was CEO and co-founder of the company, who said, are you ready to be able to serve all communities? And I was like, of course. And he's like, well, that means, you know, selling to UKIP. UKIP is the UK Independence Party, so they're very Eurosceptic. They're a right-wing populist political party in the UK. And and that, for me, looking back, it's always nice looking back at history with today's lens. That was the worst of the worst. Like, I was like, oof, that'd be hard ask, Jim. Like, that's, you're asking for me to sit in a room with people that are right-wing populists that I fundamentally, fundamentally disagree with. Tony, can I ask, in that moment, why did you feel compelled to continue to be in this space? No, obviously I know yeah. you very well, but like knowing you, why, why, like why continue with that when that's what you're presented with as, as potential engagement from working with that company? I think I had two. There's two answers to that. There's the very naive and maybe selfish, which was that's never going to happen. That idea that was presented to me, similar to Trump winning, I I equate that to when you ask journalists, why did you give him so much coverage in 2016, him being Trump? It's it's a joke. It was great headlines. It's never going to happen. I often, often say that we... The British public is paying the price for Brexit because we had media who never spoke about what it meant to be part of the European Union, what it meant to be part of a continent that was pooling its resources together. We never had that in the media. We had the, the Eurosceptic lens. Even, you know, even the BBC very rarely covered that. So we paid the price there. And again, if you listen to people, it's like Brexit was never going to happen. It was a fantasy, you know. Then we had we had about Brexit and Brexit and everyone. It was like a joke. So I honestly, which is not a good answer, but I think part of me was it's never going to happen. This is this is I don't deal in hypotheticals, and that has been one of my things that I've just like used that length, especially with the media, having been a spokesperson for the company for a while. Of 
what if X happens? I don't do hypotheticals. I don't enjoy going into the hypothetical lens. So for me, it was a hypothetical. That's the sort of, I think, very surface level, very true in that moment. I kind of want to give myself a little bit of benefit in saying that I was curious and I was more excited about the software. Jim, when you sit in front of him, has a capacity of positioning tech, technology, software as this thing that can fundamentally change the way we communicate, the way we collaborate, the way we get together, the way that got me excited. And I I think I'd very rarely sat in front of someone um, that I was just in awe of. Curiosity of just like that brain is going to do something wonderful and I want to be, I want to be there to see it. I can resonate with that. Yeah. I think there's something powerful there, which is scary as well, which is, there's response. God, we've that, I want to talk about that, but there's this responsibility that lies with someone that has so much power, being able to create powerful software and powerful tools and what that looks like. And that clearly has an idea. And, and Jim is someone who had ideas and never, ever, away from them so I sat there and I kind of I heard him and I don't think I totally heard him you know I heard him when he said are you ready to do this and I was like of course I'm ready to do this and in the back of my head going you you know they're never gonna want to use because in my mind also that the whole idea of the tool was bringing people together Mm. do you actually want to listen to each other and that party just did not represent that to me in one way shape or form and we talk about this at length of when you build a piece of software and it's used for something different again where does that responsibility lie if people are going to take something that was created for beauty and use it for evil like that's always going to happen so i think i was in that sort of naive utopian sort of space and then and then i think the reality is it moved so fast that i didn't have a moment to think about it then it was just like and that's what it felt like 2015 to 2019 was just Non-stop election after election. I mean, the big difference. You obviously working in the company in the US side. I was, I was leading the European like expansion, and those were crazy years. We had Brexit, both sides of the Brexit party, which I'll come back to. We did seven French presidential candidates, which was non-stop all throughout 2016, 2019, as 2016, 2017. And I think it's been interesting, and it's interesting now. I now talking to you, like my brain is like what Fred am I putting at because there's so much there's so much happened in, in European politics and global politics so I just yeah it was one of those where you it's hard it's hard when this shit happens to stop take a breath and take note of where you're at what's yeah. happening what's going on so Tony talk to me about both sides of yeah. of Brexit and like I'll as an Irish citizen, were yeah. they living in the US at the time? Yeah. Very much so watching it from the outside looking in. I was of that mindset of, this is a joke. This isn't going to happen. Like, there's no way. It doesn't make any sense. And so I, I'd love to hear, because I know you worked with both sides of that, like, yeah. what was that for you? What you know, not just working with them, but being there on the ground every day and then the results um there's a i think he's a journalist that said something about brexit which i resonate a lot to which was brexit sends reasonable people mad you are stepping to an arena where normal rules just seem to not apply and that really like really encapsulates the feeling of 2016 
I, it was the first moment I think where it was tested of what it meant of a serving all communities, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, there's something very powerful there of being able to not judge or not judge or not hold a moral high ground on the things you actually disagree with. Like it's, we've spoken about this. It's easy to hold moral high ground. It's easy to say things when you're talking with people that you agree with. And when you're sat in front of people you fundamentally disagree with, like that's where the limits are tested. And I had that. The stronger in campaign, we were in discussions with them for a while. I can't remember which deal I closed first. But I remember both of them asking for exclusivity, which is not a thing that we do, because, if, again, we're providing the software for everyone to be able to run for office or run your referendum. We don't do exclusivity deals. So that was an interesting one to navigate. I weirdly remember far less about the Stronger In campaign, the chronology, talking with those humans, than I do about the Vote Leave campaign. And I don't know why, but I have way more memories about working with the Vote Leave campaign, which obviously... Those are the people I disagreed with fundamentally. I remember sitting in front of David Cummings, um, who is basically the mastermind and the guy who led um, the official Leave campaign, um, who now works um, with Boris Johnson in, in, in the government in the UK. And I remember I'd gone in. My dad has printed like a hundred tiny, beautiful little pins of a like, round European flag. And I have them on more or less all of my lapels and jackets. Like it's just, part, again, as I said, it's part of my identity. And I remember going into that office and sitting in front of someone who just like, you can know when someone's eyes just go move somewhere. And I was like, oh, shit, I just walked into the Vote Leave campaign meeting with a little European flag. But professional, like no, we had no discussion about politics. And that was the thing of, for me in listening to both sides was being able to, it was my first true test of can I put my convictions aside? Can I actually shut the fuck up, be really professional, go in and listen to what they're trying to do? And I think it was a big exercise for me in humility of, I'm actually excited for you, which is weird and something that I grapple with today. I was like, I'm excited to work with you because I'm sat in front of people who fundamentally believe they're doing the right thing. Like fun, these guys, because they were mostly all men, this was their mission. I, 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 to this day, I, I don't want to put everyone in the same bucket, but most of them were doing this because it was their conviction. It was their belief. This is what they thought was right for the country. This is what they've been waiting to see for a long time, all anti-European. And I remember catching myself one day as I was writing emails to them and helping them get the software set up and going, what is wrong with you? Like, what is, what is actually wrong with you right now? Have I just, am I, am I just numb? And I think that stood with me for, have I just gone numb to it? Like, this is just a, this is, this is a transaction. This is a meeting that has to happen. I don't care what happens. This is just a transaction, which makes you sound like a mercenary, which I know is not who I am. And it's not what I do. And it's not what I believe in. But I think that going back to where my head was at in 2015 of, I want to see democracy work. I don't fucking care what it takes, but that was important to me. Yes. Like if, if I think back to the campaign, Tony, like you saying, yeah. I want to see democracy work. I I totally agree with, but for me, how I saw those campaigns, similar to how I saw the Trump campaign, was this world of lies that were being poured out from yeah. every side. 
yeah. and how, like, how as a general populace are you supposed to yeah. understand the truth of that? And I think this was one where it was knowing what your place is. So my place in that campaign was not a campaigner, was not on the strong going campaign, was not to be canvassing for that, was making sure that everyone who needed it had the tech to build a community and to do their grassroots engagement. It's like knowing your place, which is really fucking hard in society these days. Like knowing where you step up, you do your job, and knowing where you shut up and take a step back. And are there times where we should actually even be doing that? Like, should we always be, you know, at the forefront? And I think what that triggered for me on the misinformation was that wasn't my job. The fact that they were getting, the fact that they were lying and the misinformation, and that was the wild thing about this campaign when we talk about manipulation of data and Cambridge Analytica and all of that that came out afterwards. Yes, yes, that was absolutely bad appropriation of data, using it for misinformation. But there was blatant lies that were happening right in front of us, like blatant. And I think I had a moment of, that's not my responsibility. That is not something that I can take on. That's not something that my, this company should be taking on. For me, that lies with the government. If, if people can actually run a campaign on misinformation, we have bigger fucking problems than what tools they're using. And if they can get away with it, it says way more about our democracy. And to that point, like, and it was just like, we were one piece. So I, 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 I think about it now and I think in that moment I, that was the only way also to get through the days mm. I can't solve it all what is my one place what's my one thing and you've worked on the campaign so I think that must resonate with you of you're either the one knocking on doors punching the data writing the comms like whatever it is you have to know your place because else it just doesn't run you, but and in this case it was more for my sanity but the misinformation was ripe but here's where I go back to we paid the price for 40. And I said, when I say we, I mean the UK paid the price for 40 years of not educating people about what it means to be part of the European Union. And I think that's something that the media and the education system and the historians need to sit with. How is it that we were able to vote on something that basically erased more than 40 years of incredible fucking history of doing incredible things, projects like the European, the Eurostar, the Channel Tunnel, the go, the brings, you know, people from Paris or Brussels all the way to the UK, the Channel Tunnel that was built like under the water. Like that is a collaboration between two European countries. Like how was it so easy that in the space of what was it, six months, we erased all of that and took a decision that the UK should be out of it? Do you think it was an important question to be asked? No. <laughs> I, I, I think the reflecting back, Simon Hicks, who I believe is is a professor on this, and he's, he's been writing about the European Union and, and looking at European studies for years on end, wrote, it must have been 10, 15 years ago, and it's bizarre that this is a thing that's stuck with me over the years, but he wrote something, and I'm misquoting completely, but it's along the lines of, for the European Union, for the European project to survive and thrive, it's probably going to have to crumble. Like, it's probably going to have to, like, be torn apart and, and have to be rebuilt or start again for a variety and a myriad of reasons. So I think the question itself was the, the wrong one. It was the wrong time. It was, it was, I think, again, people got giddy and excited about it because they thought it never happened. And it was just an exciting moment in politics. I, I, 
I love to use this word, but it sounds like a gimmick um, or almost. I do think the questioning of what are we doing here? What does the future of the EU look like? What does it mean to collaborate? Why do we still have this when we're probably not going to wage war on each other anytime soon? That felt important, but no one had the time for that because no one actually fucking cared. Like, no one. You, 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 and it's not just the UK. You hear of French politicians who are told that they should probably run to become a member of the European Parliament. They equate that as, oh, I'm being put out. Like, that's the end of my career. You fucking kidding me? Do you know what a privilege it is to be able, in my opinion, obviously, but that's like, that's the intern dialogue of, it's a fucking privilege to be able to represent your country and on, on a stage of 500 million citizens. How is this the end of your career? Not everyone obviously thinks like that. I know of members of the European Parliament who are deeply, deeply honoured to do that job. And I know of British MEPs who are no longer, for whom this is devastating. This is their life. But there's something there about, I guess this is like a, the tough, you know, you made your bed, now you sleep in it. You didn't want this. But... And that's where, for me, it lies, Social, when you ask, like, was this an important question? I think what's more important now is what we make of what, what we have. Like, okay, so this happened. And I think that the true chaos where it really, really became complicated was the aftermath. So referendum happened, what was it, mid-June 2016. And then you had a moment of utter chaos because I don't think anyone thought that this was going to happen, even the vote leave campaign and what... I don't know this, thought they were going to win. And no one had a plan. No one had a goddamn plan, which is, this is the thing that for me surprises me of why we're not talking more about it. How can you, how can you take such a fucking decision and not have a plan? And we've heard so many iterations of Brexit, Brussels, the EU is just way too complicated for our culture to tackle and we should just, you know, ignore it. No, that's, that's dangerous. We actually have to talk about it. We have to figure out how we got here, how such a decision was ever taken, and talk about do the means justify the ends, the misinformation. Prime ministers did we go through? And Mm. talk about prime ministers and talk about making your bed and not sleeping in it. I mean, literally. The fact that you're able to bring your country to that breaking point and then walk out is, you know, and that's something I think he's going to have to to live with but and I think that's just a perfect example of no one expected this to happen but turning to your point right of seeing democracy in action we you know we can all conspiracize about whatever misinformation was out there why people voted the way they did but at the end of the day people voted that way and that in my opinion trickled into into the U.S. and we voted the way that we did in November yeah right after that yeah and that's democracy at work. And that's what, that's exactly my point. And that's exactly where my head is at. If we are truly a democracy and we truly want to be a democracy, we are not always going to like the outcomes. We're not always going to understand them. But what makes a democracy a democracy is that you're comfortable, it's maybe the wrong word, but that you allow this shit to happen and you move on. And you figure out how you make it better. So what I'm hoping out of this is, how do we make sure that we never take a referendum again with an impact so big, with as little information as a starting point and a complete lack of misunderstanding and the amount of misinformation and lies that were able to be at the forefront 
I mean, we all joke about the the bus with, you know, the NHS numbers and how much millions of pounds they were going to get, which is ludicrous. But that's what we need to We need to stop the sort of finger pointing. And I think this was where it bubbled up for me at a point of where I had a real hard time was obviously absolutely, absolutely devastated when the results came in. But the anger, which again, we're all allowed to be angry, but the anger and the hatred and the finger pointing of often the left or the the, the stronger in campaigns or the Remainers saying that every person who'd voted for Brexit was a bigot, an idiot, uneducated. And that just fucking broke my heart because, again, not our role as a tech company, but I keep going back to, okay, how do we how do we educate people to know what they're voting on? It's not their fault. It's not, let me rephrase that, it's not entirely their fault. And who the fuck are you to take a moral high ground and finger point that you lost and it's because of all of these idiots that have no idea what they voted for. And I remember it, I wrote a piece at the aftermath of the Brexit campaign, um, mostly because I was mad, but I was mad and angry and sad of the amount of hate that was spewed at us as a company, that the amount of hate that was spewed at the, the vote leave um, campaign at myself, my my LinkedIn inbox has never looked so gruesome, which was weird because I didn't get any hatred on, 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 on Facebook or on Twitter. It was on LinkedIn of all places, which was weird to me. And there was an irony of being told that I surely couldn't be a good person if I allowed for such a campaign because so I don't have that power. I don't know what I allowed such a thing, but fair enough, let's play into that allowed for such a thing to happen and then being called every single name in the game like you can't have it both ways you can't tell me that i am creating hate and you are the one spewing hate at me and so that was where it came to a boiling point for me of this isn't going to work and that's where it came for a boiling point for me in the u.s politics as well as how do we keep on how do we learn to disagree with each other And, and i think i come back to we need we need a better system i think in place for actual democracy to take place, because this isn't this isn't fucking working for no one. I don't think. Tony, what I'm hearing from from everything there is this sense of a a lack of empathy. Absolutely. And do you remember where you were when the results came in? Yeah, I was on my bed working because both sides were were bringing results, and we were making sure that the software with one of my colleagues was was up and running. And I remember having to go to sleep for a couple of hours. I was on the phone with my dad, who was very rarely at a loss for words, but who was at a loss for words. And I remember just bursting into tears, staring at my laptop. And I remember waking my other half and saying, you're not going to fucking believe this. They... They voted to leave. Like I just, I have ears in my. I have ears. I have tears in my eyes. I don't have ears in my eyes. Tears in my eyes. Just thinking about it. But remember waking him up and saying, "You will not fucking believe this." And I remember him turning around, going, "Yeah, yeah, nice one," and going rolling back to bed. And I like slapped him away. It's like I'm not fucking joking. And he looked at me, and it's the first time like waking up, going, "Wait, what?" Like the utter sheer disbelief. But no, I didn't go out. I just. I couldn't fake, like I need, like it was work for me. So I, and it was, it was, and I think I'm glad I did it alone 
But that's, yeah, in bed, working, and utter disbelief. Utter, utter disbelief. But the empathy piece, and it sounds soppy when you talk. It's bizarre, but it sounds, soppy is the wrong word, but bizarre to talk about empathy when you're talking about politics of all things. But we've, we've got to understand where people are coming from, and we've got to under, try and understand why they voted a certain way. And what, you know, I would love, I would love, love, love to say that if you took away my parents and you took away my education and you plonked me in a different part of the country, I would still be as informed. I would still have the social values that I have. I would still be, you know, a kind and understanding person. I've got no guarantee. So we've got to understand that. And I think this is the beauty of talking about it, of understanding where the people are coming from. Some people never heard a good word about the European Union, knew nothing about it, but were constantly fed lies and misinformation. So what if I was one of those per- people? The environment you you surround yourself in or the environment that you are forced to be in, I think, takes a serious toll on yeah. how people show up for political engagement, how they show up in life as a whole. But Tony, what you say there around like, you know, it sounds corny or, or for, to talk about empathy with politics. For me, it's the, it is the place that we need it the most because mm-hmm. the yeah. polarization that we see. And I think the, the two places that are so true to me right now, obviously are the US and the UK. Yeah. That polarization, it would, there would still be elements of it for sure. Yeah. But if there was empathy and, listening to where people ground on the and then that leads to the ability to commit but disagree that is where i'm not seeing that like just not seeing it like even looking at the stimulus package that that was put into place for covid19 in the us yeah the backwards and forth like it just we have to figure out a way to inject empathy and and listening and, and hearing the difference in our political sphere, or, or we're going to continue to live in this vicious circle. Yeah. And and this is where I think this is why it's always so hard for me to talk about this shit because it is getting more and more complicated because you can't talk today about politics without talking about tech. And you can't talk about tech without talking about how tech is being politicized, who has access to it, who doesn't. Who owns the technology? And then you can't talk about that without talking about the roles and responsibilities of the CEOs who are building that, you know, at the forefront of these giant tech companies. And then you can't talk about that without talking about data and data privacy and data security. And then who owns the data and how is it being used? How is it being manipulated? And you can't talk about that without talking about the media and the role of the media and misinformation and information and who, 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 whose role is it to make sure that that we are getting accurate information. And you can't, and it just like it continues to spiral. So I think for me, that's why it's become harder and harder because I am sick and tired of having or reading pieces about black and white scenarios where, well, it's very simple. Tech companies should not have any say in politics whatsoever. Okay, then we can't call for people like Mark Zuckerberg to help take away misinformation around COVID-19. You can't have it both ways. And when I think back about Europe and everything that we've learned with Europe, we've seen that there are mature democratic countries around the world, when we've seen it in Europe a lot, that have tried to censor content, that have tried to censor speech, and they've done so for decades. 
and it doesn't work. We've been proven this time and time again, that it is not efficient. And we've got to look back at the research and the, the infuriating irony in all of this is the democracies that have tried to censor content and free speech, it's ended up hurting the people it's trying to protect. So playing a game of whack-a-mole doesn't work. And like, that's just one example of that. So I am, my frustration, and I, I have no answers to this, is it's not black and white. Hence the empathy, because we have, and I say we, I don't know who we is in this, but we've got to figure out how we bring politicians, policymakers, the media, the tech companies at the table and fucking listen to each other and stop playing the, the blame game because the reality is we're never going to find solutions for a better democracy or for what democracy should be or what we want it to be if we don't work on it together. Like It's just not going to fucking happen. Government alone is not going to get us out of it. Tech companies alone are not going to help us. Politicians alone are not going to help us. And that's not happening. Question for you, Tony, and this might come out of left field because we talk about this all the time, but for some reason this is the first time I'm this is coming to my head, is if we were having this conversation, say, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. what would the industry be that tech has now taken over? Or, or is there one? Yeah. Media, I think. But media is still in the mix. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, is there the another industry that tech has replaced? Or is the reason we're feeling this friction because tech is a new industry that's taking on this this like yeah. social general populist group. I think the reason why tech is so powerful and taken such a prominent role in all of this is because of the, the breadth and depth and speed at which technology can move things. So even if you look at something like Twitter, printing press always existed, but the printing press getting, if you wanted to spread misinformation, propaganda, whatever, you're actually, you're printing out pieces of paper and nailing them to a tree or sticking them somewhere. And to get that misinformation, it's not going to spread as far as it can today and it's not going to spread as fast. And so the layer of technology hasn't actually replaced it. It's just meant, if you look at it just from that lens, in my opinion, it's just made it that that spread of information happens like that. And if Donald Trump wants to put something out there that is completely utter fabricated, he can do so. And here's the thing. Once it's out there, there is no take backs. There is no way, again, if you look back in the olden days, you can go around, I guess, your neighborhood and start pinning the papers. But again, it hasn't spread as fast or as far, so you can probably get ahead of it. There's no take backs here. And so I, I don't actually think tech is replacing an industry. I think it's just a whole new layer that is, I mean, and I was quoted in a piece saying this is scary to people because, and again, it goes back to the education piece, most people are woefully unaware of what is possible today with technology. And I don't expect the general population to have to know and understand what technology allows today. But then you look at the journalists, and I have a good friend who's a journalist who I will never, ever, she said this to me not that long ago, and I'll never forget it, where she said, I have been a financial journalist, I've been a tech journalist, it is incredibly hard to be a tech journalist because you're expected to be at the forefront and on top of every latest innovation that is impossible. Tech moves so fast, and yet we are expected to be the voice that understands, which is why you end up having journalists who actually have no idea, all due respect to them, but have no idea what they are talking about. And it's not their fault, but they are expected to know something about an industry that probably didn't exist six months ago. So how can we expect them to be an expert on it? Yet they are the people telling us what we should be known. 
And goes back to your point, we need to fucking sit down and listen to each other and understand and trust that the people who are building the tech know what they're building it for, trust that it's not always built for evil. We need to hold people to higher standards and higher levels. We need to understand and be empathetic to journalists, to that, that story, like, help me be empathetic to, oh, I get it. You're trying to, which is, was always my frustration when talking with journalists, is how do you not get this? This is not their world. They shouldn't have to get this. They shouldn't have to understand this. It's a great question, though, Sorsha. Right. Yeah, I, I, it, and I know the documentary that, that we've both watched, right, the, the Great Hack. Yeah. That brings up a lot of, of the conversation we've just gone through, right? And exactly. all of the conversations we have. For those who don't know, the Great Hack's like a Netflix documentary. What I loved about it is it was called 2019's Best Horror Movie, which I was like, sounds about right. Or a terrifying warning. That. Yeah, yeah. It was coined one of them. I don't know who, but it was coined uh, 2019's Best Horror Movie. And it is. And so, you know, it is that moment of, how do we educate people without scaring the living hell out of them? How do we educate them on what's possible with technology and what's not so that most people are aware of it? I also think citizens need to be maybe a little bit more curious. If mm. if you think you're getting something for free, you're probably the product. And that felt like a novel thing to say maybe five years ago. And today, I think most people get it. But if you're giving away your email or something and you're getting something in exchange, you are probably the product. You're probably it, which I think is what everyone kind of discovered with Facebook. Um, and it's not you per se, but it's your data, it's your footprint. Like that's the useful thing for them. So you are the commodity. How, um, how did the great hack, or uh, let me rephrase that, did the great hack trigger anything for you in particular as it relates to your experience with, with the Brexit campaign, Tony? I mean, Carol Cadwallow, who's the main journalist who was quoted um, throughout this whole experience, did a phenomenal job, but I think with it, not an easy task. I think what it, the biggest thing that I took from this is the conversation we just had. It is excruciatingly hard to talk about one certain aspect without pulling at 20 different threads, which means why this feels, I think, way more complicated or way more scary of a thing to try and understand. I... The power of, um, we, we spoke about this in our data privacy episode, but the, the amount of data that is out there today on any number one of us and the story it can tell about who we are is, is, is pretty impressive. There's a, an element that Kate, you might remember her name. Do you remember what the young woman who worked for Cambridge Analytica was called, who was in that episode a lot? She's an American. I know who you're talking about. Used to be on the Obama campaign. Yeah. She, so she, she, for some reason, her character, and she is, it's a documentary, so she's not playing anyone but herself. She's not even playing anything. She, Brittany Kaiser. Brittany Kaiser. She, and I cannot remember the moments why, but she brought up a lot for me. There's a moment, I think, in there where she is presenting, like she's got a deck, like most salespeople or business development people, and she's going around pitching what Cambridge Analytica can and can't do. And simultaneously, her bosses or someone are saying, like, this is not what we do. And so you, I had a moment of empathy for her. Holy shit, either you were woefully unaware what you, the software that you're working with, or you were lied to. I don't know which one I prefer. And as someone who works in a tech company, very, very different, obviously, um, spaces. But it, it had for me of, who do you trust when you go out there and do your job? Or when you're, who do you look to? 
to actually trust that what you're seeing is not just the tip of the iceberg, but is the whole thing. And so that for she, I had a lot of empathy for her, um, mm. like a lot of empathy for her, even though she's not typically someone I would, I would gravitate towards. But in that moment of looking at it and going, oh, wow, you were either, yeah, fully lied to, or you had no idea what you were doing. Mm. And again, you know, we need to hold people like that accountable. Of if you, it's, and we see it again of like the blame game of someone messes up, in a, especially in a tech company, a large corporation, someone says something that they shouldn't have said or built something that they shouldn't have built. You know, you can't just say, I didn't know what I was doing. It goes back to, you know, who, who are we holding responsible for the tools that we are building? And how do we do it? How do we do it? And it wasn't just, there's the great hack, but there's also the, bre- have you seen the Brexit movie? Is that the one with um, Benedict Cumberbatch? That's it. Yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Dominic Cummins. And it's pretty phenomenal as well as a, as a, as a movie. It's definitely worth that one. I think I had more of a visceral reaction to because I knew the people in that, you know, I was like, I sat down with you. I sold you tools and software. I, I remember that moment. Oh, I actually probably had an email on that day where you had that idea that said, right, let's implement X, Y, and Z. So that really threw me off a, like off a cliff or like a mental cliff. I don't mean to laugh at that, but I, I, I completely understand what you... You know, that your lives are parallel. Yeah, like like the yeah. you're looking at something and going, oof. And also David Cumberbatch did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. For the super fans, also known as my mum and dad, thanks for staying <laughs> with us right through the end and appreciate it. If you would like to, follow us along at www.unapologeticwomen.co, even though I already know you know that. We've got it bookmarked.